0: So we're sitting down with the innovators, middle managers to CEOs who are on the front lines of digital transformation to see how they did it and what they learned.
1: That's the important thing with change, right, is that whether you're making change or adjusting to change, it's really about focusing on the people. So join us as we uncover gritty perspectives on turnaround jobs, prioritization, road mapping, user behavior insights, and scaling organizations.
0: Our guest today is Steve Blank. We're really excited to have him. He is the father of modern entrepreneurship.
1: And we'll be looking at customer development in existing versus new markets, how those journeys are different, and the potential dangers of data and user behavior insight.
0: And also hearing some fun stories from Silicon Valley along the way. Let's get into it. Our guest today is entrepreneur-turned-educator Steve Blank. He's the intellectual force behind the lean startup and customer development. And we're so happy to have you with us today.
2: Thanks for having me. This is going to be fun.
0: Yeah. I'll try not to be too nerdy. But the theme that we're really on now is about understanding customer behavior and understanding our customers. And, you know, you came up with this idea of getting out of the building. I'm kind of curious of where that came from and how you've started to see people apply that notion of getting out of the building and learning more about their customers.
2: Yeah, so getting out of the building came from my experience as a serial entrepreneur. I did eight startups in 20 years. And uh, you know when I retired, I, I got to think about not only the companies I did, but the ones by then I'm sitting on the boards of Public and private companies. And I noticed a pattern that startups that did what their investors did, uh, told them to do, which was simply write a business plan, get funding, and then go execute tended to fail more than the people who threw that real bug out and got out and talked to customers uh, early and often. Um, and I found that true in, in my cases as well. In fact, there was, I just remember being thrown out of my building by a smart CEO who said, you don't know what the heck you're talking about you're you're an embarrassment to the to the title of more VP of marketing. Get the heck out and get me some first hand data. And that stuck with me through the rest of my career. And then when I retired, I realized it wasn't just only a Steve problem or a companies I've been in problem, is that we didn't have a, a set of heuristics that were different than how we were managing project management in large corporations. And the the first big idea was understanding that large companies at their core execute known business models. That is, by the time you're large, you've figured out who your customers and competitors and pricing and regulatory environment and whatever are. And and so therefore, most of the processes and procedures, OKRs, KPIs, in place, in a large company are for repeatable execution. We thought we were doing that, but actually in the early days, we're doing something radically different. We were searching for a business model. We had a series of untested hypotheses, but we didn't have any tools to build a framework around it. And so to answer your question, customer development, which became a key part of Lean, was a beginning of that new management stack for how do you search for a business
1: model? Yeah, and, and I'm curious what your observations are since that since introducing that concept, which is now such a, it's, it's woven into the fabric of innovation, you know, with or without the proper meaning behind it, um, but it's certainly in the lexicon. How have you seen that develop since then, since, since you introduced that concept and insight?
2: Well, I, you know, I, I just find it um, both amused and bemused and a little son that said, holy cow, I was probably more right than wrong. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you know, the first thing was when Eric Reese uh, became the first practitioner, uh, you know, of this, he recognized that paired with customer development was a 21st century methodology that that made equal sense called agile development. You know, we used to build products and in fact, Still, there's some, some people on their rock still building products with waterfall engineering, which says, you know, you basically have a vision or spec or customer input. And therefore, here are all the features we're going to build. You hand it to engineering who goes into a serialized process of maybe alpha test, beta test, first customer ship. But you don't get serious customer feedback until you actually ship something a year later. And and then customers either say, nah, don't want it, didn't need it too late, or I only like features three, nine, and twelve. But Agile allows you to build something iteratively and incrementally and get feedback, whether it's on the product or a different part. Remember, you know, Agile is not only about and minimum what's called minimum viable products and outcome of Agile are not only about product market fit, but also about different parts of the business model. We could easily test pricing, or we could test what the right channel is, or we could test you know, cost or supply chain, you know, the first thing we test is what's called product market fit, the fit between the mm-hmm. customers and the product. And then the third piece was finding Alexander Osterwalder's business model canvas, which was a simple visual diagram of what are the nine things that actually make up a company? Um, you know, it's not just about the product, which I always used to think about being a, a techie it's actually about the customers first and then it's about the fit between the customers and the product then it's about the channel and how do you get keep and grow them and what's the revenue strategy versus pricing tactics and then all the other pieces and so those three components business model canvas customer development and agile engineering became that first managed for startups that that we call the lean startup so, what was your question? <laughs> 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 I, think, <laughs> I don't know.
1: I did want to poke into the definition because you, you, you mentioned customer development a, a few times. What, what do you, just for uh, for those of uh, of our audience who aren't familiar with that term? What do you mean by customer development? Are you developing the customer?
2: Yeah, customer development is like a stupidly simple insight, but it is really, if you think about it, is that there's no facts inside your building, so get the hell outside. That, you know, you might be, and in fact, let's agree, you're the smartest person in your conference room and possibly your building. But unless you're going to be buying every one of your products you ship, you're not the customer. So the odds of you being smarter than the collective intelligence of your potential customers is pretty close to zero. Uh, and, and, and so what could you learn? Well, first of all, you you need to understand that everything you think on day one, even if you're a domain expert, is a series of untested hypotheses. And that's just a fancy word for you. are just effing guessing. And and, and and let's just assume humor me that says, yeah, 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 you're probably right. But humor me and go out and talk to 10 people. And before you run out and show them the product, implicitly in anything you're building, whether you're in a large company or a startup, implicitly you think you're solving a problem or a need. So dig that. You go out and talk to people about your product kind of humor me and first validate the problem that you think people want solved or that the need they want to have fulfilled. Oh, people desperately need widget X and Y, or maybe they're existing customers and you go, oh, this new version, we're sure they're going to love these three UI improvements or pay for this upgrade. Great, why don't we just test that assumption first? And, and, and well, no, I want to show them the product. No, let's show them, let's, let's make sure we understand that that what you had in your head about the problem you're solving. Okay, I did that. Now can I test and show them the product? No. Why don't we talk about how do they solve that problem today? Then um, and, and do they care about solving it? Where if it's a if you're selling B 2 B, you know, oh yeah, it's a problem. Well, did you ask? Is it a problem in the top three things they pay for? Or is it a problem forty two? That like oh I didn't ask them. so so there's a kind of conversation first problem then validate the class of solution is it something they pay for are they uh, putting it together by piece parts today that's mm-hmm. that urgent to solve or do they or will this be a substitute for something else so therefore it's a displacement sale rather than a new sale or whatever then you get to go out and start testing product features but but kind of extracting those implicit assumptions that never get asked about uh, new product creation, I I think is just a big missing step. And so customer development is kind of a four-step process. One is, let's do customer discovery, problem, solution, product, and then let's stop talking about it and do product uh, customer validation, which is, get me a damn order or an email address or some downloads or something that says, yeah, 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 we, we talk, 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 but I want to see some early evidence, early, that people not kind of are giving you nice words, but will, you know, simply open their wallet and and pay for it. And, you know, oh, I can't do that in B2B product unless I actually ship. I used to get conditional POs for $4 bucks. Well, what's a conditional PO? (laughs) Well, conditional PO is after multiple conversations with, with decision makers. Oh, we'd love it. Yeah, you know, the day you show up, we'll buy it. I'll tell you what, if you're so convinced, we've had great conversations. I want a purchase order now, Steve. I can't give you a purchase order, you got our slides. No, no, no. Why don't we do a conditional purchase order that says, I'm going to show up with a hundred percent of the features we just described, and if I do, you owe me four million dollars. And, and of course, Ninety percent of the time, that kind of blows down a million other objections that never came. Oh well, I forgot to tell you the CIO needs to be in the approval chain, and then really at that point the board <laughs> needs to get involved. And and all of a sudden, and ten percent of the time, you got to get okay, and then now you got to go back to engineering and say, hey guys, can we really deliver this? And hopefully, they've been part of this conversation. Does that make sense? So validation can either happen on a on a very B2C scale is giving your email address and, you know, or put $10 down or or even uh, a Kickstarter is kind of validation. Mm -hmm. Uh, Validation trap, actually, because you can't back out of those commitments. Um, Mm -hmm. Almost everything else you can. Did I answer your question?
0: You did. I think one of the things that people don't necessarily understand when they go to talk to customers is they say, well, I'm not supposed to ask them what they want or I can't, or they tell me what they want. And I think one of the things, the the two things that you talked about that I think people kind of miss sometimes is one, you have to understand the problem. And two is that that problem is painful enough that I'm willing to spend money or spend something, spend my time, spend my social capital. And so I think there's that key thing in um, Lean Startup that people forget is that exchange of currency. Right.
2: And, you know, that, that's that's a great point and uh, um and a couple other things jessica one uh, is it depends whether you're in an existing market or a new market when you do customer discovery in mm-hmm. an existing market as you go out and try to understand problem and solution you know the thing i like to I like to get customers to tell me is well what market are, are we talking about? Oh, this is the social media market or <laughs> markets. Then, in fact, you're in an existing business. That is, if your customer is going to actually tell you and, and why that's important it is an existing market. As you do more discovery, they'll actually teach you what the basis of competition is. They'll say, no, 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 we don't care about performance, but if it came in purple, we'd pay 20% more. And you go, really? <laughs> it's about color or about size? All of a sudden, they know the know segment as well as you do because they're a user and they will teach you what's important about pricing, whatever. But there's other markets that you're creating. There are new markets where, in fact, they it was the iPhone before the iPhone. It was, you know, pick something that never existed before you could say in an existing market, well, would you pay you know, more money for 30% more performance? And you could have an interesting conversation. Imagine that in a new market. Say, would you pay more for 30% more performance? And they go, what are you even talking about? You know? <laughs> uh, so you need to understand whether you're doing discovery in an existing. This this is that trap that people say, you know, Henry Ford would have asked if you needed.
0: I was going to ask you if you've ever been Henry Forded.
2: Yeah, but that's not that's misunderstanding customer discovery in an existing market versus customer discovery in a new market. The discovery is important, it's just different questions are being asked. In an existing market, I keep going back to you could ask customers what they want and need. Of course. (laughs) They'll teach you. In a new market, your job is is actually you're trying to predict the future. Mm. And and yes, you could think you could do that in a Zen Lotus position in a landline room with the lightning bolts coming out of your head. Mm-hmm. But you're better off getting informed and deeply understanding what's the day in the life of the customer today, because you've been out there. You now can see how they work, what the, if it's B2B, how what the organization is, what the other infrastructure is. And then envisioning not only what the day in the life would look like when they start using your product, but what's the ROI, what are the returns, you know what other ancillary products or services need to happen? What other infrastructure or any cultural changes? How how do I accelerate this classic hockey stick stick adoption? How much capital do I need? Which is very different than capital in an existing market. Mm-hmm. And, and so, customer development changes not the intent, but but the tactics changes radically. And the first test is. Do people even know what the hell you're talking about? That's the answer? No. <laughs> um, then you might want to think that you're either inarticulate if you, if you thought you were in an existing market, or you know, you're creating something new, and therefore it's a whole different ballgame. Does that help?
0: It does. So I was actually going to ask you, because I call it getting Henry Forded.
2: That's a great phrase.
0: Which happens, you're in a conversation talking about, you know, we need to do some customer discovery. And they said, well, Henry Ford said, sure. if I'd asked them what they wanted, they would have said a faster horse. Mm-hmm. And no evidence to suggest Henry Ford actually said this. But they might have said something like, I'm trying to get from place to place. This is unreliable, smelly, and might kill me because it's cranky. And so maybe there's an opportunity for an alternative way to get around.
2: Right. Or, you know, I could now live outside of a city and still come mm-hmm. into the city not in three hours, but in 20 minutes, right? And you know, all kinds of things change. Yeah. And that's that's the difference in versus gee, how many legs would you like on this new
0: horse? <laughs> <laughs> right? Because
2: I understand the horse market. Or in the military, it's the difference between the cavalry and tank warfare. Right, that that wasn't you know faster horses. That was like you show up, you do a cavalry charge against tanks, you were dead. But but that required different different vision, right, and different implementation. So I I hope that answered the question.
1: Yeah, that that's a fantastic insight because it is a it is fundamentally a different exploration of yes. the client or of the of the potential customer when you're working in new spaces. I'm curious. Uh, this is a little bit of a pivot in a slightly different direction, but. But all the product companies that I've been at have amassed an amazing amount of, of, of user behavior data um, but no, with, so. with no insight, right? Like I, I have constantly been astounded at how much data I am collecting every click videos of every user session. I mean, I have had um, access to amazing amounts of user uh, user behavior data, but no real insights around those, those users and, no, and, and even worse. No insights around how they're currently using my products, but also no insights around how they might use a different product, or um, no way to predict behavior. I'm curious if if you've observed any anyone who's doing that really well in terms of being able to to combine that rich um, analytics that that every company is building up these days and yeah. turn into an insight in a in an actionable way. Uh, I'm curious if you if, if you've seen that.
2: Yeah, and and I'm gonna be a little heretical. Um, I don't think this is. Tools, I think it's a failure of leadership if you're looking for insight you don't outsource it it's a big idea I'm trying to outsource customer discovery and trying to outsource lean oh yeah oh I get lean I'll send my employees to do that now, let me go back to the lean thing and then i'll i'll draw its analogy for insight if if you're in a startup or running a new project trying to do lean methodology if you're the leader and you're not the one out of the building you might as well forget what you're it's not worth it because it's not gathering the data. It's the ability to listen to the data on the spot mm. and be able to have the authority to say, "Well, huh? Funny you said X. You know, given what you said, what if we reconfigure the product to look like this?" No mm. employee could do that. It's a big idea. Customer discovery is not a giant focus group. Big idea for lean. It requires. The authority to make it on the spot when they see the data or else you've turned this into a long, you know, design thinking process. And that is, by the way, a critical distinction between lean and design thinking. It's not that either one is right. It's that design. lean was designed, at least by me, to be able to make rapid changes when you were cash and resource constrained and had burn rates, you know, gun to your head. Is like, well, it's a, a lot of the methodology is identical, but the motivation is quite different. You know, I need to make sure before I build a hundred million dollar factory that I have every I and T, you know, dotted and crossed. And so I need infinite data and I'll come back to the building and have lots of time to be thoughtful about it. Whereas in lean, that uh, you're operating under a different set of constraints and therefore the decision makers need to be involved. And and now to translate that to I have data, but no insight. Well, what a surprise. You hire data people. And, and, you, and if you're not insightful, then you're in the wrong effing job. Um, that is, you know, the job for me when I used to run marketing was all that data, the job I was having people gather it for is to help me derive some insights, if I was outsourcing it to some third party, what the f do they know about my day to day business? I mean, they might be able to discover some stuff, but boy, that's if if you were competing with a startup with a CEO or a VP of marketing who was great at insights and was you know yeah. using that data funnel, you know I'll run rings around you, which is what happens all the time. Does that make sense? And I don't mean to to simplify. It. There's some great. This is not that you don't need some great tools, and every week. There's better and better machine learning tools and whatever, but you know, garbage in, garbage out. Um, it is still, I don't care whether you're using a neural net or not. Um, human beings still have that best neural net so far, and when combined with great machine learning stuff, asking the right questions and going, well, wait a minute, maybe we're just pointing this thing at the wrong place. Does mm-hmm. that make sense? And I don't mean to, to, to diminish all the other stuff that people are selling and whatever, but if the leadership isn't by itself insightful and they're not engaged in the process and they're outsourcing it, you know, you're going to be missing a lot of stuff.
1: Yeah, no, that, that makes a lot of sense. I mean, it also makes sense, too, that it's really important to combine the contextual inquiry, you know, getting out of the building, get, seeing customers in their, in their habitats, trying to figure out the, the value uh, mental model for them, along with authority to be able to drive the product along with perhaps the data and, and be able to...
2: So I built a taxonomy early on, probably still valid. You know, at, at 50,000 feet, there's economic data. At 30,000 feet, there's market research data. Then you have data from your existing sales force. But to me, the things that people miss are ground truth, right? That mm-hmm. you personally have. And you don't need to see everybody, but you need to cross-correlate, you know, the all that other stuff. And we get so data and whatever that we forgot to actually go out and actually talk to people, see stuff and whatever. <laughs> and, and, and you know, the joke I used to say, and I don't mean this as a pejorative, but, you know, market researchers are awesome at predicting the past. If they were great at predicting the future, they'd be running hedge funds. <laughs> In fact, the only market research data I want to buy are from hedge funds, not from market research firms, or else they'd be <laughs> running their own portfolio somewhere. Um, and it doesn't mean the data is not useful. I'll stop being facetious. But it really needs to, if you don't have that ground truth that's driving the insight, if all you're doing is taking this data funnel and saying, well, the you know, here's the da- I'll give you a great example. I mean, I live this, and it's the one I still use. So students get out of the building when I teach this as a class, and they speak to over 100 to 150 customers in 10 weeks in a class, taking a full course of them. And so one week they were testing a part of the business model, which was pricing, not revenue strategy, but pricing tactics. And because I made them blog every customer interview, I knew what was coming in the class. They would present, you know, here's what we thought. Here's what we did. Here's what we learned. Here's what we're going to do next week was the cadence for for every week when they would present. Mm -hmm. And so they were testing pricing. And I said, well, tell the class uh, what what you found. Oh, Professor Blank, and they had a, a piece of software that... Did something interesting, and uh, we decided that our, our product should be priced at nine ninety nine as an enterprise app. And these were engineers; so that was great. Tell the class how you came up with that. You know, over the class, we've spoken to over forty people, and and uh, you know, here was the data, and they showed us a spreadsheet, and everybody in the class nodded. <laughs> I, I said, "Well, tell the class about the outliers. Oh, we, we threw out those outliers; those numbers were off the scale." Well, wait a minute. Remind the class I knew what the outliers said. <laughs> <laughs> well, there were four people who said it should be enterprise software. They paid $25,000. Well, what did you do with that data? Well, Professor Blank, the 40 people were a lot more than the four, so we discarded that data. <laughs> <And> so, <laughs> <laughs> wow. <laughs> That's the difference between data and insight. You know, I said a world class entrepreneur would have took those four and like spent a lot more time figuring out whether that was a signal in the noise. Does that make sense? Totally. It, yes,
0: it, it totally makes sense. It, it happens all
2: the time. Yeah, it it's, it's a great example. Yeah. yeah,
0: so I, I'm I'm working with right now with a, a founder led company. Yeah. Rapid, rapid growth, and so it's founder, visionary, product leader in the kind of classic way, and then they go from twelve engineers to seventy in like six to eight months, and and now, I I think they're struggling because early on that product he was getting outside the building, he was out talking to people, um, but then you know the organization starts to grow, and then there's layers of management, and then you know there's 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 a talent team and a finance team and there's a there's a need to go do fundraising and kind of business operations tasks and I sometimes find that 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 CEO visioner gets further and further away from the customer, but they still try to have the same impact on the decision, but because they're not there. They're, it's almost as if their ideas and their, their input to the team gets worse and worse as the organization gets bigger bigger. I'm curious if you've seen some of the same dynamics. Sure,
2: sure. and in fact, you know, I, I, most people remember when I wrote my first book, which kicked off lean, The Four Steps of the Epiphany, the first two mm-hmm. steps, which is discovery and, and Actually, the two steps were, one of them called the uh, company building was exactly about this problem. As companies scale... You know, how do you still keep founders intent, but without having the founder having to have 4,000 direct reports, because it's like a bad game at telephone by the time it comes down to, and 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 listen, I'll just tell you one story was, my last company was called Epiphany. And by the time I left, it had 800 people. And I remember like in the last six months, I was walking by a conference room, you know, and, and hearing them argue about pricing. And, and, you know, how to kind of should we change the pricing of the product? Now, you have to understand that Epiphany was an enterprise software company. I knew nothing about enterprise software um, or how to price it when I started. But I remembered a story about the first woman who started an enterprise software company called Sandry Um, And Sandy started a company called Ask, which was a manufacturing automation company. Um, that was the first independent piece of software on IBM mainframes. And no one knew how to price it. And so she used to tell the story as I went into a buyer who, you know, the company wanted to buy that software and they said, how much was it? And she said, I picked the biggest number I could think of at the time. And she said, $100,000. And the way she told the story is, well, the buyer never blinked. So I said, per module. (laughs) And he still didn't blink. (laughs) So then she said, per year. (laughs) And, And because they were paying IBM dollars, he still didn't blink. And then he said, and I ran out of things to like charge them for. And then he said, how much is maintenance? And said, I didn't even know what that was. So then she said, 30%. And he said, we don't pay more than 20. And she said, you have a deal. So so wait a So I heard that story. That's how I priced the Epiphany software. Wait a minute. That's how I priced my startup software. I just kind of did instead of 100 grand, it was 20, 30 years later, $700,000 per module. But wait a minute, Um, I just made it up. And well, here it was three and a half years later. I'm walking by a conference room and they're arguing about whether they should change this pricing model. And they didn't know I was standing by the door and I had to leave when someone piped up. You don't understand, those prices were calculated with theoretical efficiency of whatever. And I'm going, I just made them up. And, and here was the founder's intent filtered down through 800 people. Um, a true oh story. God. <laughs> and so, like, so and by the way, that's why I retired a day before the idea went effect. <laughs> 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 it was way beyond my. I hired a world class CEO at the time, a guy named Roger yeah. Savini, JPMG. But to answer your question, the way I kind of think about how you solve this and not solve it is in truly air quotes here is that unless you can articulate mission and mission intent, mm-hmm. um, you prematurely. Um, put in process and procedure and strangle um, a startup's growth. And by mission and mission intent, intent is not like some PR BS that companies say, what's our mission? But what is it that we're trying to do? You know, what's our revenue goal? What's our profit goals? What Do we have share goals, etc.? And and what's our intent in doing that? Will we trade off revenue for profit or is it growth at any price and we don't care about profit because we think we could tap the capital markets? Is it share? Is it number of users? So all of a sudden, people can understand the intent is equally important as the mission. And then then you translate that corporate mission and intent. I want every department to come up with their own mission and intent. What's the role of marketing? Well, at least when I used to run marketing, I had three goals. Number one goal was to create end user demand, drive it into my sales channel. Number two goal was to educate the sales force about why our products were better, cheaper, faster, et cetera. Number three was to help engineering understand customer needs and desires. If you weren't doing those three missions, you shouldn't be in my marketing department. Right. It's very simple. Mm-hmm. Um, then what was the intent, though? Well, the to pull that off, number one is, oh, we need to, needed to give sales 1.7 million leads, you know, Gee, the company was interested in gross margin rather than revenue, so help mm-hmm. sales figure out what the most problem. So once you translated those down to intent, the CEO didn't need to be you know, managing. They were managing, making sure that mission and intent were being executed, and therefore C-level staff meetings were not about reporting, but were about synchronization to make sure that everyone's mission and intent were in sync. Does mm-hmm. that make sense? That's a different way to kind of um, to, to manage but I think pretty effective when you go from about 40 to 500 people, you mm-hmm. could probably do this mission and an intent rather than silos in organizations
0: yeah and and interestingly enough the people I'm working with are around the 200 And that, that makes me think of you do working for hack, hacking for good and I think it's you hacking for defense sorry. And you just did a session of which there are a lot of videos up with general Mattis and general and McRitt- and others, but the intent thing as a military kid, uh, an army sister and a Navy daughter feels kind of similar to the idea of commander's intent.
2: Yeah. Where we came from. Oh, okay. <laughs> I, I, I had a career in the air force before I was uh, <laughs> during Vietnam. So yeah, uh, And I spend a lot of time trying to help the Department of Defense. But this actually came Mm -hmm. as an entrepreneur trying to understand what were some effective ways to push decision making in chaotic um, situations down to the lowest level when, in fact, waiting for orders was like the difference between life and death. Mm -hmm. So you could either build command and control organizations where everything had to go back through the top or you could push decision-making based on intent. And, and, and by the way, um, uh, Jessica, you're the first person ever to recognize where it came from. So you win, <laughs> you win, the, you win the 30-year award, actually. Um, uh, yes. So, so when I when I actually started thinking about what became lean, I, I read all the extent literature on um, innovation and entrepreneurship at the time, which was almost all focused on corporate innovation almost no of oh. from startup innovation but then started reading a ton of stuff about leadership and if you're familiar with uh, with commander's intent the other key influence on me was uh, reading about john boyd and the ooda loop and hmm. some, some ooda is the O-O-D, observe orient decide and act hmm. and the two biggest ah. influences on customer development was uh, boyd uh, in hindsight how he existed uh, but also uh, Rita McGrath um, and the lead user research, which was uh, kind of an interesting uh, process in the 90s uh, uh, about uh, how to do innovation in large corporations. So I did a bunch of, of synthesis of a lot of things and then realized that startups, as I said, going back to their original point, needed their own tools and processes. What was your question? <laughs> no,
0: no, it's, it, you answered the question, which is that, that relationship and, it's funny because you get we get called in sometimes and they're like, well, there's something wrong with our Agile process. Right. Um, and then I, I'm willing to bet right now, there is. I have a 95% chance it ain't about your Agile process at all. Your Agile process is probably fine. It's probably because your people don't know what they're supposed to be doing. And yeah, so, so they <laughs> don't get things done because they don't know what they're doing.
2: Right. And, and I, I, can I tell you one more story about this? Please. <laughs> so. So I remember when I retired, a, a, a woman who was both my board member and then a mentor in my whole career and then, then a good friend named Catherine Gould used to call me in to, to look at her startups. And, and it was almost always, oh, Steve, they have a marketing problem. Um, and by then I could get it down to a diagnostic and a CEO would call me in and we have a marketing problem. Well, what's the problem? Uh, well, sales isn't making their numbers. Well, why is that a marketing problem? Well, well that's what the VP of sales <laughs> <laughs> Okay, heard this one before. <laughs> well, all right, so you talk to the VP of sales. Well, it's you know, our positioning's all wrong. And then uh, and then I finally dug deeper and I I could almost do this as remote diagnostic. And the diagnostic I would I would say, and these used to be direct sales companies with salespeople across the United States. Now <laughs> give me your corporate sales deck. Great. Uh, now can I have the corporate sales deck from the salesperson in Boston or New York? Steve, what are you talking about? It's the same one. I said, uh, $100, it's not the same. <laughs> <And> of course, <laughs> they get the deck from the person in, in New York or Boston, physically as remote from, from California, Silicon Valley, and you find out that, that a smart salesperson was figured out that the, the corporate pitch wasn't working, so they made up their own. And the minute you see that, then you realized it wasn't a marketing problem. They didn't understand the customers. They had skipped the customer discovery phase and got into execution and scaling a sales organization before they had found product market fit. And and so they didn't even have the language to describe that what was happening Is that they were throwing salespeople at a problem (laughs) before actually discovering what it is that customers wanted and needed and would buy, but didn't even have the language and framework to to do that. And so my advice, which they all ignored for the first year or two till they realized it was right, is the only way to solve this problem is to fire everybody in the field, get it back to a small team around the factory, who needed to go out and do discovery and figure out what what problems you were actually solving that people would pay for before you could write a market? It wasn't a marketing problem. It was a you know it was a lean startup problem. We didn't even have the language to describe that. Does that makes sense hmm. at all.
1: Yeah, totally. Well, and it, it's it's interesting. It, yeah. Oftentimes, in, in our situation, uh, so we we wrote uh, a book. Uh, actually, Jess, I'll get. She's a co-author of uh, of the book with with our CEO on the product mindset, and it builds a lot on a lot of the concepts you're talking about. But it's interesting being in a services firm context, because as Jess is describing, the number of times that someone comes to us with their baby, right? They they have distilled their intent. I'll I'll, I'll use use your language the the mission and intent into a set of features they want us to build for them. And we have to claw them back to but why? What was what was how did you come to this? What was that journey like? And how do we reintroduce the client's voice into the conversation? Because at the end of the day, building a product is a
2: journey, not a not a spec build, execute um, process. So so Scott, you you um, you mentioned this and it's funny. I tell I tell what you just said is the problem. I described as the ugly baby problem. Mm-hmm. You know, it's uh, <laughs> you, you know. It, it, if you try to outsource this to a VP of sales or VP of marketing, and they come back and say, you know, you know, your baby's ugly, <laughs> you know, your first first response is, by the way, not you're fired. Your first response is you're not describing it correctly, right? Go <laughs> back out, or, or you're, right, you're not selling it right, or the oh, your
0: methodology is wrong. All
2: right, your methodology. And 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 I finally found that, gee, if they come back the second or third time, it's, well, we got the wrong person in the job, you're fired. Mm-hmm. But but really, the experiment I asked them to run is, no, 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 you can't outsource this. You take mm-hmm. your baby outside, personally. Mm-hmm. And now, all of a sudden, when people are telling them to their face that their baby's ugly, the first thing they'll do is make sure they're not holding it upside down and showing them the wrong end. Um, and then, <laughs> After, after they turn around, the first thing, that, the first, the second thing that happens is cognitive dissonance sets in. Like oh, they just don't get it, or wait a minute, I'm talking to the wrong people. But most of the time, smoke will start coming out of their ears, and if they're smart, they will realize that they need to pivot, and only they could do that. That's mm-hmm. what's broken. And if you can't get the leaders outside to hear that data firsthand, this this wraps us all the way back to insight versus data is mm-hmm. if leadership is unwilling to get out and hear this data themselves, then you're on a sinking ship. And, yeah, and it's to me impossible to write it unless you have lots of capital, which by the way is, is a solution in itself, but unless you have lots of capital, the founder or the CEO or the department head or whatever, if they refuse to get out of the building and run part, they don't have to hear every one of these but they have to hear enough to derive an insight themselves. If they're not that type of leader, this ain't going to go well. Mm-hmm. And if they're running a, a, something inside, my first recommendation to the CEO is: you ha- might have a world-class executor in place, but you don't have somebody in place who can program. Because okay. starting a program, back to me, requires firsthand knowledge, not the second or third-hand knowledge.
0: I, I did that once. Your
2: of myself
1: had learned that lesson. Um, <laughs> I've I've been in between an an implacable CEO and uh, and a market that's unwilling to buy a product as described. And
2: um, well, then you and, make sure their check caches, and then you know you say thank you for making <laughs> money, um, and you go through the motions if, if you need to. But um, but that's different from actually helping somebody who wants to succeed, and mm-hmm. and that works whether it's a CEO or a new project head or whatever. Because remember. Um, Most people are trained and comfortable to be executors of existing processes and procedures, particularly in large corporations. And that's Mm -hmm. not a pejorative or a diss. It's what most comfort levels are. Most people want to immediately converge, want to converge on certainty and don't like to operate on chaos and uncertainty. That's, in Mm -hmm. fact, the distinction between a founder and and a normal person. A founder goes, yeah, you know, like it's chaotic. What What a nice, you know, nice normal day. (laughs) <laughs> um.
0: <laughs> well, I think especially a a multi-time founder. And when yeah. I I did research for um cu- I did customer development for a product, I ended up killing, and we ended up realizing there was nothing there. And what I found was a very distinctive a, a, a when you talked about first-time founders and people who had had founded before, the the first-time founders comfortable with the ambiguity and that search for a model it was way higher. Yeah. And that sense that, yes, we can find it. Yes, we will. And like they, there was just, yeah. they seemed more calm and more comfortable with the idea that we're going to seek this where I think the first time founders were all energy and drive, drive, drive because there was something in them that they knew they had to change, but yet emotionally they didn't want to be wrong. Um, yeah. And that was one of the, the insights from that research was that that this the, these multi-time founders they have a level of comfort with the discovery and the ambiguity and the change that the first-time founders, and I think if you went into corporate America writ large, you wouldn't find them. And they would, they would be, have a lot more agita about what was going on.
2: And, and you know, Jessica, there is some correlation or at least I'll claim there is between founders and dysfunctional families. Um, you know, survivors of dysfunctional families, they're probably the cruelest training ground for operating in chaos and uncertainty. And, um, you know, and it's those with the brain chemistry that, that allow them to shut down most of that and have a rifle shot focus on survival. Um, you know, are it's kind of like a Darwinian group. Plus they have something to prove to the rest of the world. And and I know this personally, because when I thought I saw this pattern, the same VC I was talking about, Catherine Gould, who was a recruiter in her earlier life. I, I mentioned the terror, I said, Catherine, did you ever notice, you know, about founders and dysfunctional families? And she said, Steve, why do you think I invested in you? Um, <laughs> and then she said, Look at the rest of my portfolio. She had she had not discovered it, she had invested in it. And it turns out that it actually, if you look at the data, um, I think there is some correlation. I mean, it's not a requirement, but if you think about the chaotic and uncertain environment, where yeah. else do you get that training? Unless you've been um, in combat. And and again, you know, the people with, the, you know, if you think about it, the Army and Marines, you do battle drills constantly to train for the fight. Um, mm-hmm. We don't do that in 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 business, whether it's a startup or not. In fact, you might think that the Lean Startup classes I teach, both the Lean Launchpad, I-Corps, and Hacking for Defense, are mm-hmm. actually battle drills um, for entrepreneurship and innovation. That's all they are. Is just kind of repeatable, you know. Like, let's get used to this chaos and uncertainty.
0: Yeah, that makes a lot of sense because I did a I, I did a weekend once. It was like Lean Startup Machine or something. I was a mentor, and just watching them go through, they did, they did, they did these on clocks, and they would have to do tests and things. Yeah. Just watching how much, what was like, they left the building for the first test, they came back from that destroyed and had to like pick themselves back up. And then I was like, yes. and the organizers were like that. And then they had to go again. But then when you saw them come back the second time, when they got smacked yeah. down the second time, then they were like, okay, now, okay. And that was like, they had to they had to learn that recovery.
2: Behavior. So just, you, just, you just described a battle drill, right? So, yeah. so once you, and by the way, it also weeds out people who go, Are you kidding me? (laughs) Right. And and you know, and then you kind of understand, you know, like people like me who did this for 21 years, right? I mean, like it's just constant. It just there was always something different. Um, and so then you kind of understand the distinct makeup of people. It's like people who love roller coasters versus people who go, wait a minute, I got to pay to get on that thing? Are you, are you <laughs> or people jump out of airplanes or, or other people go, no, 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 that's in case of emergency. <laughs> not like a sport. <laughs> um, <laughs> all right. The, what oh, else yeah. can we answer Let's for you see. guys?
0: Actually, we have two standard questions for every guest. Um, I want to keep going, but we, we are close <laughs> on time, so I'm going to be good. What's the one thing you always look for on a team that tells you if it's either healthy or in trouble?
2: Whether they lie to each other or not. You know, it, it never gets better as the company scales. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and, and that's from everybody from the head of engineering or in the small group who always kind of makes up when he thinks he's going to or she's going to ship a product. To the CEO who can't tell an investor the truth uh, or doesn't know how to deliver the truth to groups that, and and I'm just telling you all the bad stuff I've seen, Mm -hmm. it never gets better in such a very bad culture. Um, I learned, uh, again, in my last company from this company CEO, Saboni, who actually had a phrase that I've used for the last 20 years is, you know, good news needs to travel fast, but bad news needs to travel faster. You know, and if you don't have that open and honest uh, uh, culture, you can't be resilient. And I've also seen in a public company that got into trouble when a division GM was kind of like stuffing the channel and because their bonuses were, you know, based on making some numbers. And while the company didn't um, punish that, that got them uh, ultimately, somebody went to jail over it. And it wasn't the guy who was cheating. It was the CFO. Unintentional. So, so, the, so the answer to answer your question, to me, the most fundamental thing is, you know, like, are you honest with yourselves and each other? And uh, I now kind of insist. I don't care how great they are. Get them out of your company. You know, give them some time to to reflect. But it needs to change, or else you're. It's not going to get better. So, on that happy note, what was your second question? <laughs> this is more fun.
0: <laughs> hopefully, what piece of technology, analog software, hardware, not your phone?
2: Can you not live without? You know, not live without, but changed my life was, uh, I bought a Tesla in 2012, mm. you know, and now on my second one, I went from Model S to Model 3. I think it's, you know, I think it's a portent of what we're all going to be driving some version of, you know, and I think now every auto company understands that and, and it's, et cetera. I, besides other pieces of technology, you know, I, I my laptop is just an integrated part of my life now, Um you know, I write a lot. Um, I don't even know how to hold a pencil or pen. I don't think anymore. <laughs> um, you know, I was writing a thing, you know, with manually. Uh, so, I, you know, we take we take that so for granted, um, at least for me and, and I'm, I'm sure others. Um, and, and I don't even have a job. You
1: know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't think uh, my children will ever learn cursive. Uh, right. I think it's working its way out of the curriculum to even bother to learn how to write more efficiently I- with a pen.
2: I have to tell you, I, I, you know, I am so uncoordinated. I could never make a circle because the ends are closed. <laughs> I, I remember. I remember the moment I was able to draw a circle at the age of 40, Um, for whatever it was. When the first Mac came out, if there was a time that I would have framed, it was like, I remember, look, it's a circle, and I actually drew it. Uh, As people now regret, because a million diagrams later, I've been drawing diagrams ever since. But, um, you know, yeah, so I say laptop, but we really... Take for granted what a leverage that has been. Yeah, on um,
0: that a hopeful note, um, thank you so much for joining us.
2: Yeah. Steve, it's a uh, honor uh, pleasure to have you. Yeah. Yes, I, I appreciate being on. And on. Thanks so yes. much.
0: Have a good one.
1: This All is right. really cool. Thank you so much. Thank you. This has been an episode of the Innovation Engine, a podcast from 3Pillar Global. If you have questions, comments, or guest suggestions, email us at info at 3 or visit us at threepillarglobal.com.